and welcome to That's Debatable, the weekly news podcast of the Free Speech Union. Hello, Ben. How are you doing? I'm very well, Tom. I hope you had a happy St. George's Day. I had a great St. George's Day, and I hope you did as well. 23rd of April comes round fast every time, just after Easter. I spent most of it with my three-year-old daughter, dressed as St. George, chasing me around the lounge, brandishing a wooden sword and whacking me with it. Uh, Patriotic enjoyment for all. So you were the dragon. I was the dragon. <laughs> it was a bit overshadowed, though, for me by the death of Barry Humphreys, which happened, I think, on the on the Saturday, the twenty second of April. Um, I, as I understand it, am I right that you don't remember Dame Edna? You don't remember Barry Humphreys as well as I might, Ben. I'm afraid that's true. I'm the wrong generation. So it it, oh. it, it, it passed me by a little bit. But I have seen lots of. Absolutely hilarious clips circulating on Twitter and Instagram and so on over the last few days, which have been genuinely yeah. very, very funny. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been fantastic to see those going by and bringing back memories. For me, they were very much my Saturday evenings, the Dame Edna experience. She did um, what Graham Norton did with his sofa. She used to do with her staircase. So quite A-list often um, uh, celebrities would come in to her show I think on one occasion, Larry Hagman, who, again, you may not know, he was JR in Dallas, comes in and she decides that she doesn't actually want him to be there, touches a button and he disappears <laughs> in front of the staircase and never gets interviewed. She, she is just, she just vetoes, she vetoes him entirely. And it was actually Larry Hagman. <laughs> and she also used to put a badge so that she could remember who her guest was. She'd, she'd, she'd put their name on a badge. I think Charles and Heston was Chuck. So she wrote Chuck and banged it on his chest so that she could remember their names during the interview. Um, I think we would be quite easy to remember, Ben and Tom, but she'd probably yeah. do something with that. You'd be Benji and I'd be Tomo or something like that. But uh, she was a, a fantastic character. And she wasn't, I was thinking about this, she wasn't really even a drag act. I mean, she was a drag act. She was a man dressed as a woman. But she was a, a complete personality with a complete backstory. And um, I think Barry Humphreys used to say that he he would, as soon as he donned the garb of Dame Edna, almost he would leave stage left. And Dame yeah. Edna herself and her voice and everything about her would appear uh, almost as soon as she got out of the dressing room. So cool. I think that uh, I think it was a fascinating thing that that, that she 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 did. Anyway, sorry, Ben. Well, I was just say drag has, of course, such a long tradition in Britain, and it would be a real pity, I think, if the baby were thrown out with the bathwater in the current culture war debates about about drag and the way in which it's being yeah. used as a vehicle by. I think it's fair to say pretty nefarious elements of um, of, of the trans rights movement. Um, I, I think that would be a great pity. Well, and interestingly, and, and you wouldn't be surprised to hear this, Ben, towards the end of his life, Barry Humphreys did come across the cancel culture reality, was considered transphobic, I think, um, on, on at least one occasion. Uh, but it, it, one of the last shows he he put on in 2018 was a stage show that celebrated the music of the Weimar Republic. It was called Weimar Cabaret. And the whole aim of that show was to highlight the danger of censorship. Barry Humphreys is an highly intelligent man, having done these characters all his life, became very aware and all the way through that of the of the way that censorship worked. And he introduced it as, you know, putting on the music that Hitler hated. <laughs> and uh, he hated censorship in all 
senses. And he, um, he, when, it, when he did come across cancel culture, he said, I think he said that, you know, the new Puritanism, he talked about this religious sense of, of what cancel culture is. He said the new Puritanism is alive, it's well, and it's powerful. And a lot of Australians, obviously all Brits, seem to be bereft of a sense of humour. And I think a lot of our Australian listeners are going to be feeling, as I am, uh, quite uh, quite sad that we've seen someone with that sparkle, that wit, that genius, a legend pass away. And will we see her kind again? No, we won't. But we can, we must, or we should hope to see something like that level of genius come back in some shape or form. When was he saying I would, that? I would hope. Uh, when was that interview? Now, I think it may have been back towards the beginning of the century. He was dropped as Vanity Fair's agony uncle in 2003. I'm not sure that particular quote comes from then. I think it comes actually from, from the 2010s rather than the early 2000s. But his, his sort of first uh, interaction with cancel culture or, or the beginnings of it was, was quite early on. So he was ahead of his time um, and had picked up on what was coming. I think he was, in every way, he was ahead of, of his time. He picked up on, on what was coming. And, uh, and of course, the cancel culture people seem to misunderstand him. There's a fantastic clip of him turning up on um, this morning. I think it was ITV's This Morning. And this was in 2021. And it wasn't Philip Schofield. It was Dermot O'Leary who happened to be interviewing on the sofa that morning. But in a completely deadpan way, he turns around to Dermot O'Leary and says, um, oh, you're very brave. Oh, you're so brave. The way that you last year, you know, came out publicly in, in, front, <laughs> in front of everyone. And, and obviously the presenters are in absolute stitches because of the way that, that, that Barry Humphreys could do that. But when reporting on it, a lot of the um, newspapers, I think it was the Huffington Post and I think it was as well as at the Independent, put in headlines along the lines of um, uh, Barry Humphreys got confused between Dermot O'Leary and Philip Schofield, as if to indicate, you know, it was, it was, purpose, <laughs> it was purposeful. But anyone who's seen those eyes, anyone who's seen that grin uh, underneath the day Edna makeup knows that Barry Humphrey knew exactly <laughs> what he was doing. It's a great clip and well worth digging out. Oh, there's so much stuff that's well worth digging out of Barry Humphrey's day Edna. Um, and his Australian alter ego, the uh, the diplomat who I, I can't remember his name. I, I was never, I never liked that one as much. Dame, it was always Dame Edna for me. I'll have to spend some time um, on YouTube. I think Tom, definitely do, definitely do. I will be it, educating myself, well as the young people say. <laughs> as the young people, you're going. You'll be going back to the 90s. Well, she goes back to the 50s, the 60s. Again, well ahead of her time as a sort of personality a cross-dressing personality and bringing a certain australian spin so i certainly do send out um my thoughts to our australian listeners who will be feeling this keenly as we are in the uk but with that should we go on to our first topic which um we wanted to talk a little bit today about the um relabeling of things last week we talked about the brecon beacons and we had a good sort of chit chat uh, ben, I think, didn't we, about what was happening there and the fact that the countryside seems both to be racist but also to be anti-climate change and that names are being changed, uh, like the Brecon Beacons. We've also got road names that are being changed. We've got school buildings and schools and university buildings where the names are being changed. And we thought it would be 
quite interesting to have a conversation about sort of where this is coming from and why does it matter and what effect it, it, it has on our free speech. And uh, certainly I find it, and I, I, I don't fully understand why I find it so very um, uh, wearing and, and slightly depressing when a, a street name or a square or, or, or even a statue, whatever, is, is, is covered or renamed. It's terribly depressing. And I, I was trying to put my finger on why this is. And I think it's something to do with the importance of our having a cultural memory and the importance in our free society of, of, of um, uh, ensuring that we don't lose that and that we don't have it papered over because it, it's very much an idea that comes from almost totalitarian states. And it, as I was thinking about it, it took me back to uh, a, an essay that Solzhenitsyn wrote, which I'm sure all our listeners, or a lot of our listeners will be aware of, called uh, Live Not By Lies. Um, and a book was actually written of the same name, Live Not By Lies, based on Solzhenitsyn's essay from that time. Uh, really helping people in the Eastern Bloc originally for Solzhenitsyn, who were struggling under this, where names were being changed or um, they were living lives that were essentially, essentially controlled by the state, by the police, by the authorities. And the question was, how, how do we kick back against this? How do, we, how, do we, how do we resist it? And Solzhenitsyn comes up with this very simple idea of just saying, well, don't participate in the lies. And I think one, one, one little quote, not from the Solzhenitsyn essay, but from this book, which kind of showed the importance of cultural memory, uh, really struck me. It said that uh, no culture and no person can remember everything. A culture's memory is the result of its collective sifting of facts to produce a story, a story that society tells itself to remember who it is. Without collective memory, you have no culture. And without a culture you have no identity. And it, it, it rather struck me that, that this idea that Solzhenitsyn had of, of not living by lies is extremely profound and, and starts to explain why I do get so very depressed when the Brecon Beacons gets renamed. I get very depressed when I see street names that have been around for hundreds of years get mm. renamed. In some sense, we are being denied our own cultural memory and, and our own cultural identity. So I don't know what you feel about any of that, Ben. I think there are a few different things going on. Firstly, I was just doing some live research into the story I remember from 2020 when Birmingham was renaming some of its roads. And I'd, I'd misremembered one of the new road names as Equality Street, which was actually a song sung by uh, Ricky Gervais and characters, David Brent. Um, but they had various... Equality Street was that, then, not Quality Street, the chocolates. Yeah, so there's Equality (laughs) Road, Respect Way, Humanity Close. I mean, it's all aside from anything else, it's terribly bland, it's unimaginative. But I think what you've picked up on is is that it is an exercise in power. It's people in power, in this case, bureaucrats in a city council, but nonetheless, people in power some relative position of power saying this is what we believe this is what our society is about now it's Mm. quite difficult to argue i think why you are opposed to living on a quality road or respect way because it invites the immediate response well what do you object to what's wrong with respecting people what's wrong with equality and i think my answer to that would be there isn't anything wrong with equality like 
the vast, overwhelming majority of British people, I, I'm opposed to racism. That's not a particularly interesting insight, I think, in 2023, because it's an absolutely ubiquitous statement. Um, so it's difficult to push back against that. And I think it, it also severs the very tenuous connection between Britain in the, this present cultural moment in the modern day and the Britain of 50 or 60 years ago, even, in fact, the Britain of 30 years ago. And that that connection is really hanging by a thread already. And then to have the continuing renaming of roads and so on, it, it, in one sense, it, it, it's quite trivial. But I think it also... It, it encapsulates the way in which politics is pushed into every sphere of life, whether it's going to a football match or it's your road being renamed or it's trying to work out what your children are being taught in school in sex education and the school telling you, no, it's copyright, we're not showing you the materials. And it mm. just batters people down, I think. I think you've got to the heart of it. Ben, when talking about it's an exercise in power. And another word that, that crops up, I think, in my mind is propaganda. It, it, it's very, what, what is propaganda? Propaganda is putting power into a glove of some kind, some sort of cultural glove, whether it's a film, whether it's a, a book, whether it's a, whether it's a street name. To remind, or whether it's the name of a city. So a lot of, as we know, a lot of Russian cities changed their names after the revolution. Again, propaganda, propaganda, propaganda. And I think it is, it is very tiresome and very depressing. And I think the people who are doing it know, know it as well. I really do. I, I think that it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It might not be quite as connected up as, as people, people say. But I mean, just take, for example, um, the the mayor's commission for diversity in the public realm i i just found that so eastern block <laughs> the way so orwellian the way it was being described uh and and so tiring and and as you say i i do want to find links that take us back to the england of 40 50 60 years ago uh i don't think it it should all be scrubbed out i think there is some good there that that's well worth hanging on to and i think that Again, we, we do have that thread being pulled at and it's going to snap at some point. Uh, so it is very, very demoralising. What it reminds me of, I, I think as well, is the French revolutionary calendar with their 10 months and so on. And it's part of that rebranding of society in accordance with a single revolutionary edict to the exclusion of every other consideration. And it is this, this Borg-like assimilation of all cultural distinctiveness into one mind and one agenda. But, of course, the French revolutionary calendar died a very quick death and is now completely forgotten. It's obviously not something that people use. So the deep undercurrent of culture and society can survive these assaults. It's just quite tiring to be living through a period of history like this in some ways, isn't it? Well, I think that uh, David Starkey calls the French Revolution the great catastrophe and really does believe that, although you're right, the, the complete decimalization of everything, everything needed to be 10, uh, thank goodness that didn't last. Uh, the, 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 more, the deeper ramifications of the French Revolution are very much still with us. And on the other side, you have sort of the, the English way of, of doing things, um, uh, which, which you know, we we as a as an empire kind of 
we we self-destructed but we did it in a way that we knew we always would we would always want um various parts of the empire to recognize their own autonomy in in different ways at different times that was almost sort of baked into the dna of, of the british way of doing things versus as you say the french revolution way of rewriting absolutely everything um so i do find i do find it interesting how all these themes link together um but i mean you know what does it have to do with free coming back to free speech specifically i i, I think what always worries me in, is the fact that the boundaries seem to get broader and broader and broader and broader when they when we do this or when society does this so what might start with the toppling of a colston uh mm. um statue or might start with the change of a of a of a, of a university building in a, in a university in scotland uh, ultimately you know guns are trained on george washington on horatio nelson and on winston churchill and and, and you think well hang on how did that happen yeah i kind of i can sign up to the idea that there were some unsavory characters maybe in our public places or on some of our road names but how did that suddenly then seem to take all our heroes away from us and again i feel that's quite a deliberate way of 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 of, of taking away the that sense of freedom we have about what we can say about these people and changing our stories i think it it's a narrowing of the overton window as well that's how it becomes a free speech concern because the range of acceptable public debate is narrowed now so tightly compared even to, to just three or four years ago i would say um, if you look at the effect of the uh, the murder of George Floyd in 2020, I saw a column uh, by Ed West on his Substack the other day in which he he argued that George Floyd, after his death, is the most influential figure in Britain for years because he, <laughs> his his death and the, the manner of his death has transformed what your children are taught in school it's changed what your road is called if you if you're on one of these streets in Birmingham it's filtered through every society every every aspect of civil society every university department is being decolonized all because of the murder of George Floyd at the hands of a police system uh, over which british politicians have no jurisdiction or power or authority or interest or or not to um, and of course, we we follow these cultural debates yeah. aptly, and they're the top of the BBC news agenda and all the rest of it. Um, and so, I think that has narrowed the limit of of acceptable political debate so much that we are now in a position yeah. where, you're, you, as I've described, you find it, you find yourself in the position of arguing why you object to your road being called a quality road, which is maddening. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, I think that's really interesting that, that you you know, as you say, George Floyd, the death of George Floyd in, in 2020 has, has seemed to have been a catalyst for all of this. And it begs the question, what if that hadn't happened? Would there have been another catalyst that would have had very, very similar consequences? Uh, it just would have been would have been a different thing, perhaps even in a different place. Um because all the, the sort of the dice were already loaded in that direction. Um I don't know. I find that a curious. We we will never know, I suppose. But I I wonder if it's um, just that that particular moment, that particular uh, spark that set it set it off. And actually, yeah. three years later, five years later, it could well have. Been, it was going to happen inevitably somehow at some point because I, everything was so primed for it. 
I think that's right. I think that it happened in 2020 at a point where everybody was locked in their homes or in the, yeah. their rooms if they're young students, for instance, doing nothing but consuming news and social media. I think that that made the powder particularly dry, if you like, and so the, that particular spark then ignited a huge explosion of sentiment that perhaps wouldn't have been exactly the same in another year. But something like it yeah. certainly would have happened and, and would have triggered a similar reaction. What's interesting, I, I was looking into yeah. um, a debate along these lines in Germany that I remembered reading about six years ago, which was the proposed renaming of the Rommel Barracks, of course, named after Field Marshal Erwin Rommel. And there had been a move uh, within Germany for, I think, understandable reasons to rename this barracks. And I thought that that had actually happened, but I've I've gone and checked. And in fact, it still has the name. Um, And so it's interesting where these lines are drawn. And in in 2017, it was decided that actually, no, that, that was fine. It's part of Germany's military tradition. Um, and if you don't like it, you've got to lump it. I wonder if that decision mm. would be reached now. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it's. I think lots of this is is unique to the Anglosphere, and is. I think woke is a contagion that spreads very easily across the English speaking world, in a way that perhaps it it doesn't in France and Germany. But I I don't know how long they'll be able to keep up those those barriers against this. Well, I, I, I often watched past St. Clement Dane's church in uh, Fleet Street or the, at the end of the Strand, and that's where the Bomber Harris uh, um, uh, statue went up. I think it went up at the end of the 80s or the beginning of the 90s. And I think exactly the same thing you just said about the, the, the Rommel situation in Germany. You know, would, would that have gone up now? And has it, has it been? Actually, maybe it has been toppled. I don't know. Um, but maybe not, because perhaps some of the controversy around Bomber Harris was much more about the leveling of, of obviously, of Dresden towards the end of the the the, the, the war, and as, as whether or not that was whether or not that was justified by Bomber Command. But of course, that was that was a European war, and and doesn't really tune into the zeitgeist of you know George Floyd and all that happened in in that arena. So so it hasn't hasn't been a worry anymore in the same way that's such a good example and that's such an interesting question i think you're right i think the to to use bomb harris's word the the de-housing of hundreds of thousands of of german workers in the war Mm. it just doesn't fit into Mm. the rubric of identity politics does it so it's not it that is considered less problematic or or less aggravating um than the debate about about Churchill and the the famine in in India, um, mm. and so on. Mm. So that obviously fits much more neatly into identity politics. Yeah, they weren't as privileged. Yeah, isn't that bizarre? Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a fascinating area. I, I think um, you know this whole discussion was very much kicked off by the renaming of the Brecon Beacons last last week. You see, suddenly, like a lot of these free speech issues, you, you scratch a little bit at the at the surface of, of one thing that's happened. And you you soon draw threads and connections and links uh that make you wonder about the bigger picture and 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 what's happening. Um which probably leads us on to to sort of what I think is the flip side of this conversation, which is sort of some of what it's being uh, replaced with. Um, so we, we talked about uh, the names of books and, and places being removed or sanitized, but there's a new kind of thing that's coming in, and I think it's what we call sort of what we, what we know as is the awareness days that we all now have to celebrate. These new things that we now have to celebrate. And Ben, I don't know what your thoughts are on that as almost the flip side of the same coin. I have very strong thoughts about this, Tom. 
So I, uh, <laughs> in, in another life, you surprised I, me. <laughs> yeah, who'd have thought it? In another life, I was responsible for the the communications of one of the colleges at Oxford University, and there was a constant pressure uh, from academics or members of staff or some students to advertise or celebrate whatever visibility or gender awareness day it might be. And so whether it's non-binary awareness week or omnisexual visibility day, and I'm, I promise I'm not making these up, we, we have a list in front of us that we have, we have prepared. <laughs> so there'd be this constant pressure to, to mark these, these liturgical events, these secular saints days, um, in a way that most people... I think still would just find completely baffling and irrelevant to their lives, whether they're gay or straight or indeed omnisexual. Uh, I just think for most people, surely these do not resonate in any way. Um, but it, again, that's part of, 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 of shrinking the Overton window, isn't it? And, and of, of limiting yeah. the range of, of dissent that is possible. Because if you feel like we were talking about last week, um, if you feel that everybody around you believes these things, you're not going to want to be, to center most people are not i i think willing to feel like they're in a minority of one it's a very difficult position to be in um and it creates this preference falsification that we talked about before and 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 of course the other thing ben is it's this curiosity of um you know i know that you know that i know that you know that this is madness um when we were looking at this uh, diversity calendar and you can go to any website just google you know, diversity calendar or inclusion and diversity calendar. And um, it grows and grows and grows. I haven't plotted it over time. I would love to do that, actually, and see how recent some of these are. But you've got to stand up and salute. You've got to sign your name to it. You've got to decorate your desk. You've got to to nod along um, or sing the songs you need to sing when these days come up. And it makes me realize I genuinely don't think that the diversity and equity officers are paid enough, Ben, because... <laughs> If they're going to have to manage a calendar as busy and as um, slightly repetitive in places, but a calendar that is busy as this, then they are going to be working weekends. They're going to be working bank holidays to make this happen. So I, I, I admire them. I admire anyone who works in DEI, how they keep up with the workload. And this workload is growing exponentially. I just picked LGBT. QIA plus and I was able to pull out 25 dates weeks or months that were distinct celebrations there were history months there were special weeks there were special days there were visibility days and there were remembrance days as I say they're quite repetitive in places and there are things honestly I the only one I would keep I think I said this to you earlier Ben is gay uncle day I'm, I'm all for that <laughs> Uh, I think uh, we need we need Gay Uncle Week. It's missing. Uh, but other than that, that's 13th of August. Other than that, I think these 25, oh, how many were there five years ago? How many were there 10 years ago? I wonder. And who's pushing for them? And what do they mean when there are so many? Um, this is this is this is where my head head starts to boggle. I, I described my theory last week of bureaucrats and civil servants and junior administrators and so on working towards the woke, working in anticipation of what of what they think the demands of social justice are going to be. And I think yeah. this is a textbook example of that, where you have an awareness day or week in every month on this list, apart from January, I think, um, 
it creates and that's red january now as well i can't remember what red january but that means something kind of an overall theme as well so right you know it's it's there, there's something in january anyway you carry on then well, it, it's like those pictures of of london during pride week with the ever-changing pride flag and you see this yeah. in oxford particularly where i'm going often often in oxford and you see i mean it almost looks like a conquered city with these bizarre flags that were completely unfamiliar to the eye not long ago, fluttering over every possible building. Um, and it, 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 Leadenhall Market is the same. Uh, in yeah. the, just next to Lloyd's, the Lloyd's building, uh, in the middle of the city of London, hanging from Leadenhall Market. And I thought they were all the same flag. They're not. They're all very subtly different for all the different hues and flavours of LGBTQ um ideology it it's <laughs> very it's like you say it's like a conquered city um, well, one of the other uh, this is just a just sort of stray thought that occurs to me but the amount of knowledge now required if you do not come from an upper middle class background to enter into the middle class and to pass yourself off as a middle class person is absolutely staggering because generations ago it might be that you know, you'd have to learn which way to pass the port and which set of cutlery to use first or something like that. But now you have to learn reams of material about social justice, about race, about gender. You have to know the difference between a coloured person and a person of colour and why one is outrageously offensive and why one is the current standard phraseology and probably won't be in two years' time, if that. Um, and, and there is, I think, a class dimension to all of this in that this is... Aside from everything, everything else, it's a very elaborate system for a set of people to preserve their status in society and to lock whole groups of undesirable plebs out. I agree. And, and of course, again, there's sort of the flip side of this, Ben, all these days and, and sort of this power play for what you need to say and what you're not allowed to say. We're not allowed to celebrate in the same way St. George's Day or Guy Fawkes Night is the one that really riles me up because that's been subsumed by uh halloween now mm. um but guy fawkes was always a fun time and and it still is it still is but it's just not celebrated or talked about um probably because it was obviously protestants and catholics and uh, but it's a good bit of english history it's an important yeah. part of english history but guy fawkes night isn't isn't celebrated st george's why would you celebrate a saint who wasn't even english you know and, and you think well hang on King Edward did that a long time ago, he, you know, and and he took it on board, and and we've celebrated it ever since. And Shakespeare's written about it. It hasn't come out of nowhere. It's come out of important English history, um, but we're told to poo-poo it. We're told to 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 put it down as unimportant, secondary. Um, don't worry yourselves about it. And again, that's very dismaying and very dis- dis- depressing. It, it feels very much like post-reformation england where there's a set of establishment prestige new beliefs and they're very they're very attractive to people who belong to a certain class who want to progress their career um and want to look prosperous and successful and then there are these low prestige celebrations like celebrating saint george's day for instance um Mm. or high risk yeah and it's a very effective way of maintaining cultural and social power by having such a stark division between the people who to extend the metaphor know which knife and fork to use and the people who don't 
and I think it's not just about that, but that's a large a large part of it. And and I think you know the question is how's this going to? I mean, this has already reached a ridiculous point, Ben. Twenty five distinct items that I was able to pick out of the twenty twenty three diversity calendar. At what point does even you know the people working on this say you know enough's enough? Uh, we we don't have room enough, and I, I don't know until someone somewhere has to wake up and say you can't keep get expecting people to to sort of clap along to yet another day of celebration and uh, as we know from our casework they really are expected to clap along with it and and, and on some of these things if they don't sort of sign up to it they get into into trouble or Um, i mean we've had so many cases where people work for a civil service quango or a university and they say something like well hang on the taxpayer or or students are paying us a lot of money to perform a particular service or to carry out a particular function of government why are we spending so much money and so much time and and effort on celebrating these 25 gender and and sexual identity days and there was uh, was it a freedom of information request or or um some research done by alumni for free speech that found that st andrews university for instance is spending two hundred and thirty-five thousand pounds a year on equality diversity and inclusion that was in the sunday times a couple of days ago um and there's a big team of people there who are who are supervising uh the the, the EDI or, or DIE, as we've started to call it, agenda. We've started to call it DIE, yeah. yeah. And, and I, I've got no reason to think that's not completely typical of the sector and of of you know, big businesses, I suppose, as well, but also of, of government departments and so on. But Ben, think about um, how we start to try to put the brakes on it. Okay, that's tough. That's hard with that amount of money sloshing around and being pushed in this direction and the number of jobs that, you know, just at St. Andrews, you know, the jobs that would that would pay for. But then try and put it into reverse because you can't just stop the truck. You've actually got to put it into reverse. What do you take off the calendar first? Where do you start? Or do you just have to root it all out and say, you know what? And this would certainly from the flag's perspective, I personally, as personal belief, I think that we should fly the Union Jack uh, or the Scottish flag or the St. George flag or the Welsh flag and the, the sovereign standard, but pretty much leave it at that. Yeah, uh, on public buildings. That's yeah. my my own personal view. And that that would be a complete clear out from where we are at the moment. And I I, I struggle to see sort of what the inter- interim stages are to getting back to some sort of normality. I think as we we've talked about a few a few times, I think it requires people gently pushing back against these things in their workplace mm. or the the small part of of life that each of us do have some control over. In your own sphere of influence, however modest it might be, if you can push back against these things, and I know it's not—I know from personal experience that it's not easy to do that, but it can be done. Um, and ultimately, if you find yourself where where you're in trouble and you need some advice, you can come and you can contact the Free Speech Union. Our membership starts at just two pound forty nine a month. We have—I think we've dealt with more than two thousand cases. We have a lot of experience um, with every conceivable possible uh, free speech infringement that that, that could be imagined at this point so speak up reasonably politely and and we're here if you need assistance but i think if people don't do that this is like a runaway nuclear reaction or a runaway train it's just something that has its own 
logic, its own um, its own propulsion and motivation. And and the trouble is, if you're on the other side of these issues, the project is never going to be complete. No revolutionary project ever is. And so, <laughs> and, and this is why we spend so much time in 2023 talking about racism. But yeah. because yeah. It, because as long as long as there's a single racist left in the British Isles, the work project will never be complete. It will never be never finished. Be yeah. Well, Ben, in in those last few seconds, you sounded exactly like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, and what he's trying to say in "Live Not by Lives." Oh, yeah, "Live Not by Lives." <laughs> Uh, yeah, and 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 I'm reading through uh, some of the, some of the things in that book uh, that he says, and they are exactly that. The only one, the only one that I would add is join the Free Speech Union, which I don't think he said at the time. And but if he was here, I think he would today. I really do. On the plus side, I'm pretty sure the UK civil service could not organise a system of gulags. <laughs> I think you're right. <laughs> I think you're right. I think the blob would struggle. Uh, so I, I, I could I could put it in a number of different ways, but I'm going to refrain from doing that for the sake of our, our listeners. <laughs> but shall we shall we move on, Ben, to talk about some of our forthcoming <clears throat> events? Yes, let's. We've we've got a few to talk about um, quite quickly. Um, the first one is an event on. Blasphemy, Blasphemy Law by the Backdoor, which is taking place on the 10th of May at 7.30pm. All of these details are on the website of the Free Speech Union, so go away and look at that. Um, and this is going to be a great panel, <clears throat> and I don't say that because I'm speaking on it, but we, we I have some great co-panellists, um, Dr. Akib Asan, uh, Stephen Evans of the National Secular Society, and Emma Webb uh, of the Common Sense Society. And there's so much to pack into that conversation to give you a preview of, of what I think we'll be talking about, uh, I will be making the argument that 10, 15 years ago, the West could fairly coherently make an argument against Islamic blasphemy laws and could fairly reasonably hold itself up as as a paragon of, of liberalism and freedom of speech. But I think that looking at it where we are now in 2023, so much of our moral authority has been eroded by the capitulation to this Californian progressive woke whatever you want whatever you want to call it this ideology um, and the imposition of uh, test act like restrictions in workplaces and in universities and I think that's really hobbled the West's moral authority to oppose blasphemy laws so I think it's really important that that we rebuild that credibility and that we oppose blasphemy laws these stealth blasphemy laws as we've seen in the case at, at Wakefield very recently earlier this year. Um, yeah. and, and th th this is an urgent project that is going to be generational in nature. This is going to be something that that will be discussed for half a century at least, I think. Um, so we really need. And to it's a chance to see it. you in in person, isn't it, Ben? As well, it's yes. a chance to to see see the man behind the voice. Yes, come and say hello. Um, so I think that's going to be that's going to be a fascinating <laughs> event. Um, and then the next yeah. one is the Living Freedom Summer School. Uh, which runs from uh, the end of June to the 1st of July in London. Uh, and this is something that the Free Speech Union is uh, part funding, and it's all about encouraging young people to discover the value of free speech. So we don't just want to uh, bemoan how awful everything is. We do actually want to do something about it, whether it's helping people through our casework with our case and legal team um, or trying to rebuild a culture of, of free speech at universities. And um, so all these are huge projects that we're not naive about that. 
Um, but you've got to start somewhere. So that will be excellent. Uh, and finally, uh, the Edmund Burke Foundation is running a conference on national conservatism from the 15th to the 17th of May. Uh, that has an amazing roster of speakers. I'm hoping to, to be there to go and listen to some of them, uh, including our chairman, Professor Nigel Bigger, uh, Douglas Murray, uh, a, a long list of very, very interesting um, academics, politicians, thinkers. I think that'll be fantastic. And it's going to be one of those events where you can't possibly see everything you want to go and see and listen to everybody you want to go and listen to. Um, but I think that will be uh, that will be well worth attending. So yeah, I'm hoping to go to that. Anyway, that's enough spiel for I'm me. I'm gutted I can't make that. Um, then I'd love to go along to that. But sadly, I'm going to be on a swimming camp down in Lanzarote. Um, I could come back for it, but I am probably won't. Uh, so, uh, but I, I think it's just uh, you know, as we were preparing for this podcast, it's uh, we suddenly realised we've got we've got just quite a list of really good events coming up around the corner. Do go to our website. Do have a look at. Do have a look at them um because uh there's a chance to meet people see people and and know that you're not alone as well i think yeah. our next topic um is one that's cropped up this week in the news which is about our universities and it's about the uh confucius institutes that have been uh sort of spreading around our our the, our universities our academic sector over the last well it's it's now decades uh, and these Confucius Institutes are are essentially set up for uh, by uh, by by Chinese authorities using Chinese money in our universities to almost control, in particular, Chinese students. Um, they they have been uh, sort of cropping up, as I say, over the last couple of decades, and they are essentially they're offshoots of the CCP. The the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda department, and they're embedded in our universities. So we've got 30 Confucius Institutes in the United Kingdom, including at Edinburgh, at Manchester, at University College London, and at the London School of Economics. And the government uh, contributes money for the learning of Mandarin, but there's little to no monitoring of the language teaching that then actually gets provided at these institutes. As I say, Sweden, well, US has got rid of most of these institutes. Sweden closed down the last of its institutes in 2020, but we've still got them. Um, and what, what's worrying about this is that, you know, it, it, it certainly breaks UK uh, employment law where employees of these Confucius institutes are appointed on the basis of their political characteristics and their ethnicity. So they must be ethnic Chinese and they must agree they must agree to undermine and silence attempts to criticize academic partnerships with China um, so in, in essence the Confucius Institutes their job is to keep all Chinese persons in British universities under control and it's all extraordinarily chilling it's quite amazing that this is happening under our noses in the academic sector in the United Kingdom and other developed countries um, and there's a new charity called UK China Transparency. Uh, this new charity, I, I did check it on the uh, on Companies House over the weekend, and uh, there's very little information on it at this stage because it is that new. Uh, but it contends that the institutes are actually operating illegally, and they're going to be publishing a report later this week. We will be we will be looking at that very carefully, um, and certainly. Uh, following up on 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 what that report says, and 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 we'll be talking about it in in later episode episodes, I, I'm sure. 
But I mean, you know, what in theory, we would hope that the the higher education freedom of speech bill that's going to come in would immediately sort of highlight the need that these Confucius Institutes need to be closed. Um, but I think my view on that is I'll believe it when I see it, because it seems, you know, the big question is, how has this been allowed to happen? Uh, I have a theory uh, is that you have to follow the money in essence. And I think universities have realized that there's some nice checks coming their way from the CCP if they uh, look the other way while these Confucius Institutes are thriving under their nose. And I think if you follow the money, that might start to uh, half explain how this has happened. But I don't don't know what your thoughts are on this, Ben. Well, so many of these issues have been known about for such a long time. I, I remember even when I was an undergraduate when was that 2009 onwards um it it was known that if you were from hong kong or taiwan um that you could face a pretty difficult time from chinese students at the university um and that there were there were you know this was common knowledge it was it was it was widespread as a problem you know 15 years ago um that there'd be this kind of intimidation uh, particularly, I remember of, of Hong Kong students, um, and the Confucius yep. Institutes are just one aspect of the CCP's uh, infiltration of Western societies and their attempt to uh, repress dissidents. And one of the the shocking developments in this area that came last week was the report from New York that a secret Chinese police station operating in New York um, had been shut down, and that. Last year, it was reported that there were several undeclared police stations operating in the UK, uh, two in London and one in Glasgow, uh, where Chinese police effectively were harassing or or intimidating dissidents. Um, and so in the UK, this in the UK, and uh, and the police station in inverted commas in New York that was that was shut last week. So uh, I think it's it's yet another case of where all of these problems have been, um, we were just talking about blasphemy, all of these problems have been known about for such a long time. And there's been, yeah. I think, an unpardonable reluctance and hesitation uh, about dealing with them. Um, let's hope that but now... The, the interesting thing I, I worry about, Ben, there is, uh, I agree, there's been a reluctance, there's been a hesitancy, and that's been shared across a number of countries. But some other countries seem to have been quicker off the mark than us in the UK. You know, the US, I think, are, are taking action now. Sweden's taken its action back in 2020. And we're kind of... Is it because we've had three prime ministers? Is it because we've had been distracted with other things? But Or, or, or is it just that... Our university sector is particularly supine, uninterested, but very interested in the Chinese money. I I don't know. I think money. I think money is a big part of it. Um, I think probably looking at the the differential between the pay of American university leaders and British university leaders, seeing all of the huge debates about tuition fees for home students in the UK, and so on, um, and the impossibility over the last 10 years since then of raising them again or at least the acknowledgement of the huge host- huge hostility that any such move would, would trigger and universities just wanting to hoover up as much cash as they possibly can from international students and their whole business yeah. model being based on doing that um i think yeah. that just creates a dynamic where 
Uh, am, I, am I quoting Harold Wilson where you can't kick your creditors in the balls? I think that's what it is. <laughs> well, you can. You just get into terrible trouble. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> there was another point I just wanted to make on, on the Confucius Institutes, Ben, which is, of course, if our, if our university sector had been really sharp on free speech and freedom of expression and hadn't let that slip while other things like EDI, DEI, and DIE were sort of in the ascendant, then we would have spotted quicker, sooner, earlier. We would have been, we would have had the antennae, antennae to see this coming. Yeah. And so I wonder as well it's, if it's not just following the money, but as well as that, it's, uh, it's the fact we haven't actually got the sort of freedom of expression. Uh, we're not equipped with the freedom of expression uh, instinct to see what these institutes were doing and what the CCP was been doing in our university sector. And also, I think our adversaries are incredibly adept at manipulating the cultural politics and the frenzied cultural politics um, since 2016-17 against us. And so one concept, for instance, the term Islamophobia, that is extremely effective at silencing criticism of Islam because it conflates anti-Muslim bigotry um, or hatred of Muslims yeah. as people with criticism of the teachings of Muhammad or of Islamic scripture. And they're two completely distinct things. Um, and this term Islamophobia, I think, has also then, aside from many other harms, it's also a prototype for how other groups of people, for instance, can accuse their critics of Sinophobia. And it it it, yeah. it, it, it is yeah. a it is a wonderful way of silencing or making um, criticism of yourself very difficult. Yeah, yeah. You're 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 being hateful towards me. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it's like they're 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 gagging us. They're gagging us. They're they're bundling us into the back of the van, and at the same time, we're being hateful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, it's 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 a very clever little tactic. I agree with you, and they're very adept at it. Very, very adept at it. Certainly, the CCP knows what they're doing. I sometimes wonder whether they don't. I don't. I don't know whether they look over at the woke culture and, and just raise a glass to it and say, "Thank you, you've done the work for us." Yeah, well, it's it's um, the it, don't interrupt your enemy while he's making a mistake, isn't it? I think. Just sit oh, back and watch. Yeah, which which is a comes back to a Chinese art of war, doesn't it? <laughs> i have to look that up i think it does yeah i think it does i think it um, might come back to the art yeah. of war yeah most things do <laughs> or the prince i can't i can't remember which if it's if it's sun Tzu or machiavelli I can't machiavelli remember. it might be i'll yeah. have to check yeah anyway tom you have some good news for us. there is some good news yes we, we love to we love to be able to bring good news which is uh many of our listeners will be aware of the troubles that we had with paypal in september last year uh in unbanking people in in, in terms of kicking they certainly we got kicked off paypal and other people have been kicked off uh paypal like us for them was kicked off around the same time as us we got back on uh after a campaign to to make this uh very public what had happened to us anyhow over in the u.s What's happened is that some of the shareholder activists, so the, the, the National Center for Public Policy Research, had requested PayPal's board to conduct uh, an evaluation on um, how PayPal oversees risk related to discrimination against individuals based on their race, their color, their religion, their sex, their national origin, or critically, their political views. Um, because we think that 
and, and, and certainly I think the, the National Centre for Public Policy Research also suspects that this is something worth looking a little bit more deeply into. And what's happened today, or, or I think it may have been Friday, uh, was the SEC has um, said, yes, PayPal, we agree that, uh, the, that this report uh, should be written, that there should be this investigation into uh, whether or not there is discrimination against customers based on political and religious views. So that is that is very significant. And what what is curious is that PayPal was pushing back against this. PayPal was saying, "Oh no, this is micromanagement of the company. We don't we don't want this kind of report and this kind of investigation happening at PayPal." And went to the SEC and said, "You know, you, you must agree with us, SEC, that this is micromanagement." And the SEC said, "No, we don't. We think there's there's merit." in looking into this because you are such an important part of the financial system. And uh, so, yeah, I think this is great news. Yes, it's in the US, but PayPal as a US company, uh, we'll, we'll see what that report says. And I, I would hope that it has a ripple effect or ramifications if it's positive for, for PayPal around the world. Um, but yeah, I, I wondered whether this might be sort of the beginning of a pushback against woke capitalism, um, which, uh, you know, is, is something we are seeing more and more. We think about Nike and we think about, um, Bud Light and we think about Coca-Cola, uh, well now PayPal and the financial exclusion that we talked about in an earlier episode, uh, the SEC is on the customer side and on the shareholder side here in looking a little bit more deeply into it. So I think that is very good news, well worth uh, pausing on and, and, and celebrating. Well, that's, that's very encouraging. And it does suggest that if PayPal is so reluctant to go into this area, that they must have something to hide or something that at least would be quite embarrassing. And I, I have encountered occasionally a libertarian pushback against the idea that the Free Speech Union should be campaigning on this issue and the argument that PayPal is a private business and should be able to uh, transact business with whichever customers it likes and to refuse the customer mm. whoever it wants to. But I think that that argument only goes so far. And when you get to a position where a company like PayPal is a monopoly, or close enough to being one, uh, I don't think that argument holds much water. Um, because particularly when all or the vast majority of financial service companies and banks and so on are all animated by the same uh, woke, hyper-progressive political zeal that, that we see across society now, um, I think it's insufficient to take that hardline libertarian stance and say, well, it's a private business and that's the end of the story. Uh, unfortunately for all of us, it's much more complicated, I think, than that. I think you're, I think you're right. I, I was, um, I was quite... Um... Uh, pleased to find an article on the, on not on the PayPal situation, but more on the sort of broader point you're making there, Ben, about woke and 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 uh, the way that sort of woke capitalism has come about. Um, you know, in, in companies that we used to think were all about profit, all about shareholders, have suddenly become all about being progressive and part of this. This mm. and and it's a Lionel Shriver article called "How to Offend Your Customers," and I just love. The last paragraph, I, I do enjoy reading Lionel Shriver, but she, she says right at the end, she says, look, I know we're all sick to the back teeth of the word woke, but at least it's unisyllabic and punchy, and most of us know what it means. Besides, we wouldn't have to use the tiresome shorthand nearly as often if there weren't so bloody much of it about. You know, and I think that's that's what that made me smile because I thought you, you're right. You start to look at PayPal and you, you then go down this list of things 
And uh, you realize, yes, it's infected everything. And I just love to see this kind of pushback against it. Uh, and to see, and as you say, I think they, who knows, we have to wait till the report comes out. But it will be very interesting to see how things are motivated. And, you know, let's remember the Twitter files, of course. Uh, all the stuff that came out when people looked hard into Twitter. Uh, these sorts of investigations have merit in terms of just showing, showing, uh, shining a light on what's really going on. So let's keep our fingers crossed on this one, I think. Well, at the risk of repeating myself, I think all of these... Uh, achieving achieving change is possible, but all these things can take a long time and it requires a lot of persistence from individuals within companies, uh, within the civil service or universities. Um, and it requires campaigning and research and hard work identifying, uh, getting to the nub of these of these problems in order to to deal with them. And other other people have overcome them in other times. It's now, you know, history. This isn't the first time this kind of thing's happened in history. And I go back to that Souls and it's in um, uh, live not, what's it? Live not, live not by lies. That Souls and it's in way of just pushing back gently, as you say, uh, Ben. I think of it as dropping the rope. Just yeah. don't, don't sing along to it. Just quietly, passively, without making a fuss, just say, I'm not playing the game. And it's extraordinarily powerful, and, and it terrifies people actually when when they see that happening. Just a few people need to do it, and it is it's genuine pushback. Well, you know, I don't think I have anything more to add. Live not by lies. Goodbye. Live not by lies. Exactly. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, I think we've covered our um, uh, material for today, including our events. So a reminder that all of those events are at freespeechunion.org. Uh, so do visit the website, do sign up for any of those that interest you, and you will get the opportunity, if you sign up to the Blasphemy one, you will get the opportunity to see Ben on the panel. Um, but thank you again for listening, and uh, we'll speak to you next week. 